0: I acquired the skill of teaching non techy people tech stuff by doing client work since I was 15, right? Because every time I sat down with a client to teach them how to use their website, they would go, I'm sorry, I'm really bad at this. And I would say, well, if everybody was good at what I did, I wouldn't have a job.
1: Podcast Junkies, episode 276. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you are new to the show... Welcome, welcome. It's the show where we search out interesting voices in podcasting and get them to kick back their heels and talk about their shows. And then we get into whatever else is in their mind. And that's where the fun and juicy stuff is. In case you missed last week's show, we had a great conversation with return guest Jen Briney, longtime friend of the show. Always a lot of fun and high vibe energy when we get to catching up on all things podcasting. So great to see how far she's come with her show, Congressional Dish, now going eight plus years, nine plus years strong. And we talk about um, what's been helpful for her and how she's now profitable, successfully making money as a podcaster through her show. So it's a really inspiring story. Make sure you check that out, 275. This episode's brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Sound card, one of my favorite go to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. This week, I welcome to the show educator, author, and podcast consultant Joe Casabona. He's the host of How I Built It, a podcast that provides insight from tech savvy small business owners and developers on how they built their products from idea to execution. And in this episode we talk about Joe's circuitous route to entrepreneurship from a stint teaching at the collegiate level to eventually reaching self-employment and launching his own podcasting company. He opens up about his prior role at an agency and the decision to leave and pursue his passion and shares the lessons he's learned throughout the years including why curiosity is a major key success factor in his life. We learn about something he's changed his mind about in It speaks to why his inquisitive nature has made him a naturally gifted podcast host. Episode 276. Let's not forget that this episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. Fullcast Fullcast.co is the website. If you need help with any aspect of your show from launch to production and marketing, we can help. Schedule a free chat at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15 about your existing or new show. As I mentioned last episode, getting caught up on past interviews I've found and didn't get a chance to review. This one is from Just Me to Say. Super high quality audio and love the interviews. I love how it gives you a myriad of topics. There are so many different podcasts out there, and being able to highlight other podcasts and find a story behind it adds an element of passion and curiosity. Thank you, Just Me to Say. Tibor at Mindset Horizon. Tibor, a long time, no catch up. Let's uh, make sure that doesn't happen and we uh, get you on the show a great podcast with great guests. If you're a podcaster and want to learn about podcasting and or business, tune into this show because there are some value bombs being dropped in each episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Tibor. Carvey writes, this is an amazing concept. If you're not rocking with the best in podcasting, Harry and fam, you're asleep. So wake up with the appropriate emojis as well. <laughs> Kavi Kavi's a friend from Austin. Uh, and again, uh, someone that is long overdue for a catch up. And then Juana Porreiro says, Harry has some great guests on his podcast and especially enjoyed the Rush Johns interview. Fabulous guests with a wealth of knowledge. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to learn about anything. Whoa, that's big. Thank you so much, Juana. Again, if you'd like your Rating read out, head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast chunkies, and I'll be sure to read it out on new episodes. Make sure you check out one of the podcast apps that support direct podcaster support at newpodcastapps.com. Regarding that, I did actually get a confirmed uh, donation of Satoshis, which is Bitcoin micropayments. And I actually did make a note of the email I got. It was from Kieran Down. And he said, not sure who mentioned it in the podcasting 2.0 world, but I listened to your episode with Jason on Podcast Junkies. First of all, super cool show, mate. I'm definitely going to dive into your back catalog and listen to some of the older stuff you've done. You both talked about Podcasting 2.0, and I just wanted to let you know that I sent through a boostagram to Podcast Chunkies. So I hope that you've got your setup to be able to receive them. Thanks, Karen. I do. And I did. And that was super awesome to trace that back to you. So if you don't know what we're talking about, head on over to newpodcastapps.com. And if your show is set up on the value for value model, you too can receive boosts to your show as they're listening in the form of Satoshi's, which are Bitcoin micropayments. If that was all making your head spin, then make sure you check out this new podcast from my friend, Dave Jackson. It's called Leading the Bleeding, as in the bleeding edge, leading the bleeding. And there's been a couple of episodes that talk exactly about everything that's happening in this crypto payments for podcasting world. We're actually going to be recording an episode this evening as well. Leading the Bleeding, the new podcast from Dave Jackson, where you can learn all about this stuff. Okay. Thanks for taking the time to listen through all that. I really appreciate it. And I want to make sure I'm giving back and recognizing the people that support the show and the people that are showing love for the show. Super important. And one of the, my mantras is always treat uh, your guests as gold and your superfans as gold. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Joe. I'm sure you'll love it. So Joe Casabona, host of How I Built This. Thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Regular listeners will not be surprised that as of probably a week or two ago we hadn't even met <laughs> did not know, I, d- I did not know you your podcast existed and uh, that's just the way the world works now
0: yeah absolutely yeah i think uh well we we crossed paths on a uh a zapier meetup that we. yes yeah very cool so
1: to for the benefit of the listener can you tell me a little bit about that and i'll i'll i'll, let, I'll fill in with how i ended up on that webinar
0: yeah. So my friend Maddie Osman, who uh, couldn't actually be on, on the last meetup, she tweeted that she thought it was wild that there was like no Zapier based meetup. And I said, we should start one. So it, it was, uh, we started talking and we got our friend Jimmy Rose involved because he has a, like a Zapier mastery course. And so we started it in like the middle of the pandemic. So it's, it was online only right from the beginning. And you know, it's been hard finding presenters will reach out and we, you know, schedules change. And I think it's a little bit more fluid if you have like an online only event. So I decided I'd present uh, for this month and go through a lot of my fun podcast automations because I'm a pretty much a one man band as far as putting everything together goes. I have an editor and a transcriber. But aside from that, I handle like all the scheduling and, and a lot of the research and stuff like that.
1: It was so fascinating, because this seems like a, a world within worlds, because there's the podcast circle, and then the Zapier circle, and then the love of automation circle, and all these Venn diagrams. And, so, and there weren't that many people on, so I just started chatting away to you guys. And I'm like, oh, this is... It looks like got a cool podcast. I just happen to have a platform where we talk to podcasters, <laughs> and I what's funny is about the show is I'm scratching my own edge because I wanted to learn about what you do, and essentially what I'm doing is having that conversation, but just in public and just educating my listeners to new shows they may not have heard of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the reason I started my podcast as well, because I was starting like an online courses business. Okay. primarily in the WordPress space. That's kind of where I started. And, um, I was having all these great conversations with friends and I was like, man, I should like publish these. So I had the domain, how I built it, I bought it while my wife and I were on our honeymoon in Italy. And, uh, yeah, I saw like all these dot it domains and I was like, oh, I wonder if this one exists and no one had it. So I picked it up and, um, and I, I didn't really have an idea for it. I just wanted it. And then the show the show i had an idea and put it all together this is why i hoard domains like that i just think of things and use them later
1: <laughs> did you know about guy Raz's how i built this at the time
0: let me tell you <laughs> my podcast <laughs> launched about three to four months before his
1: are you serious That's yeah so
0: cool. yeah and i was like i didn't have the clairvoyance to get like the trademark or anything like that because i wasn't sure if this was going to be a thing or not i was just like whatever these are just conversations with friends and but uh, i haven't gotten a, a cease and desist from them <laughs> so i guess we're probably okay at this point
1: i love the use of uh, creative use of domains uh, and country domains especially so what year was this just to time stamp it 2016 2016 yeah so i know you're talking about the online business stuff but what was your podcast inspiration at the time
0: I was listening to a lot of Relay FM podcasts, so Connected Upgrade, The Pen Addict, because I'm like a huge fountain pen fan, and then you know I was listening to like Serial and Lore and and all that fun stuff. But I my first podcast was a few years before that, in like 2013, I want to say. My friends and I were having a conversation, and this is like a super embarrassing thing for me that I don't think I've said publicly yet, but. We were at a bar and I said, I said something like, why do you need to rotate your tires when they just rotate when you drive them? And uh, it, I'm not, I have a master's degree, but I have no common sense. And so we started talking about just like car stuff. And I was like, we should make this a podcast. So it was like me and four of my friends, we started a podcast called TIL Podcast for Today I Learned. And it was not great because I wasn't really good at promoting podcasts at the time, and. Having like a roundtable discussion where you don't have a good moderator just is a bunch of people talking over one another. So, But I learned everything I needed to learn about podcasting from that. And then I launched How I Built It a couple of years later.
1: What was some of the tech stuff? Did that that stuff come naturally? Did you stumble along the way? Because you've got, for the benefit of the listener, you've got a... it's just That's just the big foam on the SM7B, right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, I got like the the bigger pop filter on this because... I I really hit my peas hard, I guess.
1: (laughs) So talk to me about your figuring out the tech journey.
0: Yeah, I have always been into computers for a long time, since I was like 10, probably. Which, you know, for reference, I'm 35. So it was mid-90s. My dad brought home like one of the first laptops I've ever seen. And I was trying it out. And then we got, he let me pick out like the family desktop computer, which was like a gateway Gateway, 2000, yeah. <laughs> yeah and i just kind of started doing stuff and i realized that if you just tried things most of it was not permanent and it came pretty intuitive to me so like i started selling mixed cds in high school like i was zach morris in the 2000s because <laughs> so we had our own phone line that so i could leave the internet connected overnight And so I would just, like, download songs overnight, burn the CDs in the morning before I went to school. And I guaranteed two-day – I was Amazon Prime before Amazon Prime. I guaranteed two-day delivery on CDs.
1: Do you have to put us back in the time machine? What are some of the, the best, what was your best mix or most requested or most popular <laughs> mix or some of the songs on there?
0: So I would get a lot of like people would want full albums and I knew the, the three tier pricing even back then, right? So like if they wanted a full album, all I had to do was like look up the song list. They wouldn't have to make the list for me. So for three bucks, I would just give you the CD. But for five bucks, I would also print the label that was on the CD and and slap it on there like sticky style and then for 10 bucks I would recreate the whole CD for you. This is for if anybody from like the FBI or the RIA is listening. <laughs> this could all be a fictional story, but some of the some of the more fun mixes were like ironically very Metallica heavy because I had like a lot of like friends who were like into metal. That's funny. The Atari's cd that came out around that time which i was just listening to and now escapes me but it had the boys of summer on it it was like their 2003 album that was like a pretty popular one i ended up making that cd a lot and then eminem's not his premiere album the the marshall mathers lp was another one that was like pretty popular so some people would give me lists of just like random songs but some people a lot of people would ask for like the full albums
1: that's so funny So what were you thinking about in terms of a structure for the show? And how did you think about that? And do you experiment with a couple of different ones before you landed on, on the one you currently have?
0: Yes. So it was at first, I basically just asked the same five questions. It was like, who are you and what do you do? How did you come up with the idea? What were some failures along the way? How did you build it? I interviewed a lot of plugin developers, really. Okay. Because again, most of my network is in the WordPress space. And so I had a lot of my friends on. I had Chris Coyer on. I don't know if you're familiar with like CSS tricks, but he was a pretty big name early on that I got him and Troy Dean were like pretty big names in the web development and WordPress space. And so I just kind of asked the same five questions. And then as I started, I got pretty popular pretty early. Maybe some brand confusion helped that. But, I mean, podcasting is not a zero-sum game, right? And it's not like I would see, like, a spike of, like, 10,000 downloads one week and then, like, a drop-off to, like, 10 downloads the next week. I was able to keep the audience, even though I was very obviously not the other show, right? So I want to go beyond kind of the WordPress space. So I I started interviewing, like, non-developers, non-techie people about business stuff, and that's how we landed on... Uh, kind of today's format I changed the tagline to actionable tech tips for small business owners because I'm still kind of in that tech niche and now the format is a lot less structured it's very conversational so I I used to ask like what research did you do to figure out your product and most people like I didn't do any research I just built it (laughs) and I'm like oh yeah so how did you build it the only two questions I really ask now that like from episode to episode are who are you and what do you do and the last question, which is, do you have any trade secrets for us? And I explained in my guest notes, like trade secrets is not like, what's the Coca-Cola recipe? It's like, what's good advice that you don't think enough people
1: take? What are some gems from that question?
0: The first answer I ever got was really good. So this this was a question I asked from the very, the very first episode. My friend Jason Coleman was my first guest of Paid Memberships Pro. And he said something to the effect of, you got to take a mental break or start your day with something positive. Like he would start his day with like support requests and like people are mean, especially when it comes to like, cause I think they had like a free version of their software and like free, like free customers are the meanest cause they have the highest expectations and the most entitlement. And so like, he, he's like, I had to stop doing that. So like, that was a really good one. Another one was, you know, it done is better than perfect. I know that's like a, a common one, but um, Scott Ballinger was the guy who, who offered that advice because he's like, look, you could, if you spend too much time writing software, writing a program or building a business before you launch it, you might spend like a year on it and then realize that that's not what anybody wanted. But if you get something out in a couple of months... You can introduce it and then iterate on it and mold it into something that people will want. And you haven't sunk a year of your life into it if it's like a bad idea, if it needs to pivot quickly. So I really liked that because I think a lot of people tend to be like, it's not perfect. People are going to hate it. But, you know, it's do your best. And luckily, anything we do on the internet, especially like we can iterate, you know, we're not like building a building.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny that that we're speaking today, and you, you're bringing up this concept of uh, perfect as the enemy of done. A couple of days ago, I was seeing on Twitter, everyone's saying, any podcast recommendations, any podcast recommendations? So I kind of similar to the ethos you had when you were in Italy. I was like, is that domain available? And so I grabbed it, and I was like, what can I do with it? And then I know no code. Anyway, I was thinking about the automation stuff. Okay, I was like, Notion, Airtable, Gumroad. And it's the sites up. I just launched it like uh, last night, and I put it on Product Hunt, <laughs> and I got two paying customers. <laughs> That's amazing. Paying nineteen dollars, nineteen dollars for a week of uh, placement on the site, and it completely puts me out of my comfort zone because I'm a perfectionist. Like, and and I know people in the space are like, I want it to look good in a font and a logo, and and uh, it, it was a good lesson because it just like, if you had twenty four hours to ship something, like what what would you do? So.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I love that. I should write that down. If you have 24 hours to ship something, what would you do? That's great. You know, and I, as we record this this week, I finished basically like a a double header of course creation. So I create courses for LinkedIn, but I also create courses for myself. And for a long time, I was like hemming and hawing. I wanted to have it out for WordPress 5.8 because it's about the block editor and these new features that are coming in WordPress And then 5.8 came out last week and I was like, I got to get this launched. And I was like, you know what? There are videos that I'm shooting over a couple of days. If one is terrible and my students tell me it's terrible, I can replace it like very quickly. So I went in there. I had a structure for the course. I spend the most time on the outlines because you want to make sure that you are structuring the course the right way. And so for the one course, I recorded everything, shipped it to my editor. That's another big lesson that I've learned is like editing is my least favorite part of everything. So I just record and I send it off to somebody, and then it comes back and it sounds or looks great. Good move. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Like I, I let's put a. I'll, I have a sidebar, but okay. The second course is a very new experimental feature in WordPress called full site editing, and I was like, how am I going to structure this? And I just ran through the interface recorded a bunch of videos and I'm slapping a beta label on it I'm like hey if you want to take this course now and see what it's like pay you'll pay half price and you'll get lifetime updates so when it's polished in a couple of months and I reshoot the videos you will be you will have gotten the best possible price for it
1: is that like when you have a website and you're like edit this page and you can literally edit what it kind of like in live mode and so you visually see what's happening as it's happening.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so oh, cool. WordPress was a little bit behind the eight ball on this. WordPress has been around since like 2003. Yeah, yeah. And so their interface got really dated in like 2015, I think the Gutenberg project was announced and there was a big effort to modernize the editor so the way that you create just the content and that was phase 1 which rolled out in 2018. Uh, and my course on how to use that was first to market. And so I want to do the same thing with full site editing, which is like phase two. So now it's it's coming out of just the content editor and you can modify the headers and the footer. So it's creating a much more Squarespace-like experience, I would say. And it's super buggy, but it's really great. I am pumped about this because I'm a developer myself, but the less code I need to write for the basics means I can spend more time on, like, the, the actual crux of the matter, right? Like, how do I figure out this really important thing that hasn't been solved before? I don't have to worry about writing, like, the basis, the basics or, or the main templates anymore. That's included in WordPress now.
1: And I'm assuming your site is the crash test dummy, like, where you're working out all these ideas and, and seeing what works and what doesn't?
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I have a, a few domains in this space. I will like update my personal like org my personal website live, just kind of design in the open because I have the luxury of not getting like a ton of like super important traffic to that. My e-commerce site, my membership site, I don't do it there because like, that's money. I'm losing money when that's down. And then I have two other sites that are basically demo sites where I just kind of mess around and again in the open or for the course. If you're anybody who takes the course, we'll see how we built out these sites. If you just kind of stumble upon it, you know, you can, you basically see the site that we've built and it's like, it looks like a real site.
1: You've also done some teaching at the college level.
0: Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> when, um, when I graduated from college in 07 from the university of Scranton and I realized I wasn't quite ready for the real world, which I feel is like a very millennial thing to say, I suppose. <laughs> but I was also, I... Who is? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And I had been freelancing since high school. I got my first web design client in 2001. How old are you? Oh, I was I, 15. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was 15, 16, maybe. My church came to me and they're like...
1: No paper routes for you.
0: No, no. I, I was always very... How can I use my brain? And work from. I joke that if computers didn't exist, I'd be completely unemployed. I like <laughs> unemployable. I can't do anything with my hands. Yeah, I don't think
1: we we would. We, we <laughs> can't fathom a world without computers. And just even just when you there's no one that's not walking around with a phone in their hand, and it's not far. Like literally, like if I just go to family events, like everyone's got their phone in their back pocket. I've always joked that you should have uh, jeans created with an iPhone. Slot on the side because it's like, <laughs> but it, just to speak to how can, yeah, how pervasive it is now. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. I try, you know, I left my phone home once and it was so freeing. I was like, well, people can't get in touch with me. I wasn't reaching for something. I have the Apple Watch now, but I got rid of the cellular line because I used it like exactly twice. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I paying 10 bucks a month for this? But, uh yeah, so I was like 15, 16 when I had my first web design client. And I've, I've, oh, and so I ran my own business all throughout high school and college. My first niche was like helping students start their own businesses because I'm like, anybody can do it. And they're like, they're like, "I, I can't do anything. Like, I like scrapbooking. I'm like, you know how many people want scrapbooks? Like, just tell people you do it. Charge like 50 bucks plus materials, whatever.
1: So question there. What is it about how you grew up, your influences when you were younger that, like what makes you want to teach? Because it, it's just I feel like I mean, I kudos and props to all the teachers in the world because it's just an underappreciated profession. And so, what was in your heart at the time, and what what, what fuels you, and what compels you? Because I get the sense, and just from this this short conversation, that you you love teaching, you love educating.
0: Yeah, I really do. And I guess I've never been. This is a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked this before. I would have to say. For all the great things that my parents taught me, teaching is not one of them. So I'll start off with, you shouldn't start negatively, but my dad was always kind of bad in explaining things. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. He would get really mad because he's a New York Italian, so our first reaction is to lose our temper. And and then he would come in and explain like why he got mad, which is a parenting tactic that I have now picked up and am passing on to my children. Smart. But uh, as far as teaching goes, I had some really great teachers throughout school, which, unfortunately, I went to Catholic school my whole life, including college, and I I worry that my daughter will not get the same kind of education that I got from the Catholic school system, but, like, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Weisberg— was amazing, super hands-on, bust like 10 years old, bust your chops at the right point and like not in a mean way. My eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Curtin, was really strict but very good at what she taught. I had a bunch of really great high school teachers. And then in college, I think the most impactful teaching methods I gathered were from college professors in computer science who would present us with these problems that they have obviously spent the last 20 years solving and they would approach them like they've never seen them before. So like perfect example is the Dutch national flag problem. It's basically a sorting problem. You have a bag of three different color marbles. You need to sort them into the colors. Also blue, white and red all together. And this is a 50 year old computer science problem.
1: So can you, in layman's terms, can you explain it and also since we don't have video, you have to do it and using theater of the mind as well.
0: Yes. So imagine you have, let's say, a bag of marbles and they're all mixed in a single bag, red, white, and blue. Okay. And the Dutch flag is basically three solid colors, right? I think it's blue, white, and red is how it's arranged. And so the if we're solving this without a computer, we would take a marble out of the bag, look at the color, place it in the blue bucket the white bucket or the red bucket and the idea is we want all of the marbles sorted by color in computer science this is you're looking at a structure you're looking at the data in the structure and we're sorting it a certain way so it could be by color or if you have like a list of numbers that are all jumbled and you want them to be in ascending order you can do it that way but the Dutch national flag problem is basically an exercise to get students to think about how to sort things with code. And Dr. McCloskey has been teaching, learned it probably when he was in school. He had been teaching for 20 years when I had him and he arranged it for us. And then we would present possible solutions and he would seriously consider them as if he did not know the solution. So he would like think through it, talk out loud about, does this work? And that was super helpful for me, for I, I'm sure for all of us, because we were seeing how he worked through a problem, and we were kind of learning by doing, and I loved that. And then I, I got this, I acquired the skill of of probably teaching non techy people tech stuff by doing client work since I was 15, right? Because every time I sat down with a client to teach them how to use their website, they would go, "I'm sorry, I'm really bad at this," and I would say, "Well." if everybody was good at what I did, I wouldn't have a job, right? So let's sit down. I will explain it to you. If you have questions, ask them. And so by the time I got to grad school, which is I think how this whole conversation started, I applied for a teaching assistantship and I got it and I loved it. And I kept on doing it as long as I I kept on teaching, as long as I lived in close proximity to my alma mater.
1: What was something that you had an expectation of going to teaching And then real world (laughs) hits you and it's not exactly what you imagined.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I never thought I would be like the the Robin Williams character from Dead Poet Society or whatever. Right. I never thought that. I was very goofy at first. And I thought that I mean, I still am. I'm like a giant cartoon character. But I thought at first that being the kind of young, approachable. Oh, call me Joe like Mr. Casabone is my dad. <laughs> I thought that that would win students over, but I was dealing with like 17, 18 year olds, right? I was teaching mostly college freshmen who like didn't care to be in this required class. I taught a, at first I taught a course called computer literacy. Every freshman had to take it and it was super boring. I mean, I I made it more relevant and more interesting, but like In the curriculum, I was supposed to like teach them how to convert from decimal base 10, right? The number system that we use to binary. And I'm like, who will ever use this?
1: And that's what Google's for anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I thought like being the approachable, like, oh, just call me Joe kind of teacher would win them over and make them pay attention. But it did for some. But a lot of students, I feel, probably didn't respect me because I was like, trying to be cool right it's like the parents who try to be friends with their kids yeah so that lasted i think an academic year and then the next year i was like i gotta make him call me professor casabona like it's just and that worked i think the straw that broke the camels back there was a dude was sitting in his class i let my students have laptops because i hated when teachers were like you can't have a laptop in this class i'm like it's how i take notes if you don't think i'm paying attention like that'll show up on the test right?
1: That's true. Good point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like, I mean, if I'm not paying attention because I already know it, then fine. And if I'm not paying attention because I don't know it, like do it at my own peril. So I let my students have laptops and one kid sat right in front. His name was Sean. I I probably shouldn't have said that, that I used his real (laughs) name. And he was like, so should I play Call of Duty or should I just like browse Reddit? And I was like, you should do the super secret option of pay attention to me when I talk. (laughs) And I like shut his laptop which i'd probably get in trouble for now
1: <laughs> but i know yeah, yeah, yeah. after
0: that i was like ah, yeah the just call me joe i'm super approachable probably didn't work and so i was still like approachable and nice but call me professor casabona i think is just the little bit of authority that you need especially because i was like 24 when i started teaching like if i had a senior we could have been in classes together right and <laughs> during undergrad so
1: that might get a little awkward yeah
0: yeah. So that was a big lesson for me.
1: So when did the the thought in your head about teaching may not be the full, the thing I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? Like, is it just a, the experience you had as an entrepreneur early on? I'm sure you, that never left you. And just talk about that journey to entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah. So it, it, it really was in me from a very early age. And I don't really know why, but like. We would have yard sales and I would like try to sell my old stuff at a profit.
1: <laughs> Before Facebook Marketplace.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, we would do like the church yard sale or my, my we do a neighborhood yard sale. And I'd be like, that's five bucks. And people were like, you're supposed to sell things at the yard sale for like 50 cents. So I was like, this is good, though. So I did that. And then I started fixing people's computers for money because, again, that was something I learned early on that most people didn't understand. And it kind of clicked with me. I made my first website for, it, my first website was a paid gig. Again, it was our church. And my dad's like, you should do it for free. And I'm like, but they're going to pay me. They offered. So after that, I was like, I wonder who else needs websites. And so I did that. And
1: where were you building them in back then?
0: Front page. Front page, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, Microsoft front page. And then when I got to college, my friend Steve Mikosh was like, you shouldn't use front page. And I'm like, what should I use? He's like, you shouldn't write code by hand and i'm like okay so i did that and i learned that a lot of people were like flabbergasted they're like you don't use dreamweaver i'm like no i just write it all by hand
1: dream i love dreamweaver though (laughs) that's it yeah
0: right it was great um and so the way i did it with front page was i would do something and then i would look at the source code tab
1: smart uh
0: to see what was generated right so yeah so then i started doing things by hand and then i discovered wordpress in 2004 but throughout that whole time i was making money on the side right i was like i feel like i was a college student that was never a poor college student because i had my side hustle or it wasn't called that back then but and i would always use like a client project for a school project
1: that's so smart
0: (laughs) and like yeah i mean like my high school paid me five thousand dollars for a website which was like bananas money at the time it was more than i had ever charged for a website wow and i was taking a web development course at school at the time. And our final project was like a website build out. And I'm like, bang, I'm going to do one for my high school. Oh, that's great. That's really nice of you. Yes. That's very nice oh of me. Oh my God.
1: That's like, it's so circular there because the school where you were at paid for you to do a website, but also you were a student at the school and yeah, it's kind of circular there. It's I, was, I was basically
0: <laughs> paying to get paid to make a website.
1: <laughs> you get your money back.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was so throughout that whole time, I was enjoying that. And then right after I got my master's degree, I was qualified to teach at the college level as an adjunct professor. And I was doing that and running my web design, web development business on the side. And that was going great until I was 25 and a half. And I realized that soon I would have no health insurance. So I got a real. Nobody can see me using the heavy quote fingers, but a real job.
1: Yes. Air quotes. Yep.
0: And I still kept teaching. I taught at the University of Scranton until I moved away from Scranton, which is when I got married. My wife and I got married. Then we moved in together in an apartment near the hospital where she works. She's a nurse. So after I moved away from there, I thought, man, I, sh- I really want to keep like developing classes or teaching. And so that's when I launched my online course business which allowed me to kind of keep teaching even though it wasn't in the classroom. So that's, I, I was still doing full-time development. I worked at an agency making websites for like Disney and Nat Geographic. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm a huge, I mean, you can probably see in the background, I've got a bunch of Disney collateral.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Uh, there's like WandaVision, like a WandaVision haunted mansion mashup. And there's like Snow White. Are you a
1: Marvel or DC?
0: Marvel. Okay. I'm a Marvel guy. I always liked Superman, but Captain America was... I've always loved Captain America. And
1: your Star, your star Wars, if I read your site correctly. <laughs>
0: yeah, big, big Star Wars. If I had to pick between the three, Star Wars wins all the way.
1: <laughs> what was something you took away from the agency work? Because that's operating now at another level, right? And it's, you're seeing world-class work you know, people being compensated or company, at least the agency being compensated for world-class work. Were some, some of your takeaways from that time there?
0: Yeah. So let me start by saying the best advice I did not take was from one of my dad's friends who was an entrepreneur. And he said, look, it's great that you want to start your own business. Don't rush into it. After you graduate, get a job at an agency or at the enterprise level and learn how they do things and network and build your network that way and then go out on your own and I was like 21 and full of hubris and I was like I don't need that I got the internet and then I got my first real job at the University of Scranton and like the first day I was like I don't know anything and so fast forward a couple of years later I kind of felt like I was stagnating like smaller colleges or like weirdly cutthroat when trying to go <laughs> up the ladder it was so weird But I realized that like my skills were stagnating too. I was talking to people at conferences and I was like, I don't do any of that. So I got a job at an agency and the things I learned there, first of all, never be afraid to ask questions, right? I I think people, especially young people, go into jobs and they're like, I need to already know everything. But if you waste like three hours spinning your wheels on a problem, that is going to cost the agency or the business more money than if you try for like an hour and then ask somebody who probably knows the answer or can at least help you troubleshoot.
1: It's such an important takeaway, this idea of being comfortable asking questions, but also having a manager who lets you ask questions. And I I had a really good manager who said, there's no wrong question. Just ask it, just no dumb question. Because he knows like when you're younger and you just get really nervous when like all your peers are around you or all your managers, are you going to say the wrong thing? And just fostering an environment where there is no wrong answer, that I think is is extremely helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I act like I am, but I don't want to be, because I want to be able to learn from people. And like no one expects anybody to know everything, right? And a good manager shows that, right? Again, at the university, I loved the University of Scranton, but there were a couple of bad managers there. They are, I don't think they're there any longer. But, you know, I would raise questions. I'm a little bit of a pain in the neck. I have strong opinions. And when I see something I think is wrong, I'll ask that question. And I would essentially get shouted down by the people above me. Like, I'm like, why are we doing this this way? And they're like, because I said so. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not (laughs) your five year old. Like, I'm a professional and you've hired me as a professional. So the way around that was, they would always hire consultants. I feel like this is like a very higher ed thing. They're like understaffed. So they hire a consultant for like twice what they would pay the employee. So I would just always buddy up to the consultant and be like, here are the way things are going. You should probably suggest this. And they're like, yeah, that's, that is what we should suggest. And they would suggest it. And because the consultant suggested it, they would take that suggestion.
1: Yeah. I've been there.
0: Yeah. And so like, I mean like, but the consultants and I would have like a good relationship I wouldn't just be like, look, you're coming in and you don't know anything. I'd be like, we respect your knowledge. Here's my experience working here. We both kind of know the same stuff. Let's come to a conclusion that you can then suggest because they won't listen to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're the one that has to live with what they implement. Most of the time, they give you this super expensive playbook. And then everyone who's actually do the work now, because it's like, OK, here's all the new work your team has. And then they leave with their fat paycheck. And then everyone, the people working there are just like, uh, we don't have time to implement this.
0: Yeah. I remember one time my boss, my direct boss was amazing. She was like a second mom to me. She was great. I invited her to my wedding, actually. She was amazing. Oh, that's nice. And I remember like she cut me off one time because there was a consultant. This was like right around the time IE8 was being phased out. And... But we still needed it because a third of our users still used it. And they were converting a website to, to be responsive, right, which is mobile friendly automatically. And I, not to toot my own horn here, but I had a book written called Responsive Design with WordPress. I was very familiar with the principles of responsive design. And we were talking to the consultant and I said, hey, our site doesn't work in IE8. And they said, oh yeah, we don't support IE8. And I was like, no, we need to support IE8. This should have been discovered in the discovery phase because a third of our users use it. And then they were like, well, we can like figure something out. I'm like, I know what we need to do to fix it. And then I was like, also, like, we have a lot of tables on our site and the tables don't work on mobile. And they said, oh, well, tables are really hard. And I said, oh, I forgot that web design was supposed to be easy. And then, like, I opened my mouth again, and my immediate boss was like, okay, let's move on to the next (laughs) thing. So, but it's just, you know, I guess I don't really know how we got here. I'm not shy with my opinions, I guess.
1: We were just talking about your journey. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your time at the agency and what you were learning about what to do, what not to do, you know, even just working with other people.
0: Yeah, so... I've never been shy with my opinion. I I tell my wife this all the time. Like people kind of think, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything because things aren't going to change. Well, things definitely won't change if you don't say anything. And so even, you know, at previous jobs when we were paychecks were coming in a little bit late because like work was really slow and I would ask tough questions. You know, I would say like, you know, we just hired somebody. Did you tell the person we hired that we're having trouble making payroll? Because I'd be pissed if I left my previous job just to find out that I wasn't getting paid on time here. And when I left that job, a lot of my coworkers were sad to see me go. And somebody said, who's going to ask all the questions during like the company meetings now? And I was like, all of you, you can all do it. Like, I'm happy to be the mouth when I'm here.
1: You basically united them. You're like, yeah, you've now been.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so, you know, I was never afraid. I, I don't, I mean, as far as I know, I never lost anybody's respect for it either. Because I was not disrespectful, but I would ask questions that I know other people wanted to know the answer to. I wanted to know the answer to. And it's kind of because I cared, right? If I wasn't asking questions, it means I was just checked out. I didn't care what was happening. I would just show up and do my job. But I did care about the company I was a part of and the the people I worked with.
1: Were you like that as a kid?
0: Yeah, I asked a lot of questions. Um, And my (laughs) parents... My parents would always make comments about it. Like, you ask too many questions. And I was like, I want to know everything.
1: It's so funny. I always think of the kid from Jerry Maguire. He's like, Did you know bees can smell fear? <laughs> and I think it's just parents and, you know, there's so much they have, you know, God bless them all because they've got so much to worry about. But, you know, squashing that sense of curiosity in a child. And I've heard that it's a magical range of like zero, when like one to seven years. And they're just, I don't know if that's because they're like transitioning from the other life or world that they came from or just they have this like magical quality where they're just like everything is wonderful and everything's fantastic and it's just it's better if we could just tap into that more often I think we'd all be better off
0: yeah they're so curious and they have like no sense of embarrassment right so they're not gonna there's no voice in their head going don't ask that that's stupid my daughter is four my son is one. We have a third one on the way in, in December. And I try to tell my, I just read the book uh, Soundtracks by John A. Cuff or John A. Cuff. Okay. And so, based on that book, I've made a, a soundtracks board. He basically says, like, the negative thoughts in your head are broken soundtracks. You keep playing them and you believe them. You need to replace them with good soundtracks. And one is Curiosity Beats Criticism and Don't Crush Your Kids' Curiosity. Because, like, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to watch the game. And my daughter's like, what's that? Who's this? And I'm just like, ugh, leave me alone. (laughs) But I try really hard not to, you know? She was asking me about baseball. I'm a huge Yankee fan.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, go Yankees. Yeah, me too, man.
0: Yes. They got waxed, I think, today. I stopped watching the game. But, yeah, they got waxed pretty hard. But, um... You know, she sat down next to me and she, and she was like, what was that? What's that? I was like, oh, that was a strike. And that means this. And she's like, so the next day she's like, can you talk to me about balls and strikes again? And I'm like,
1: "Wow, yes.
0: So <laughs> I, when she asks me a question, I try so hard, no matter how I'm feeling, to just tell myself that don't crush her curiosity.
1: That's so awesome. You should have her learn how to keep score.
0: I know, right? I get like, I think they have a field notes notebook, like a pocket notebook that has the scorecard in it.
1: And you get the, uh, my girlfriend loves oh, like the old timey aspect of baseball. So she'll go to a game just to sit in the bleachers and like keep the score like the old timey way with <laughs> the. Oh, that's awesome. That would be kind of make it interactive. I don't know if you've taken her to a game yet, but it just obviously nothing beats a live game, but that's fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We took her when she was very little. And then like, okay. I mean, the pandemic happened. And because she was like two when it started <laughs> and is like four now, <laughs> like, cause she's, she was born in March. So it started like right before her third birthday. And she's like a whole different person now. But now that things are opening up, for sure, I'd love to take her to a game. We live outside Philly, so we're pretty close to Citizens Bank Park. And I think the Yankees are starting to go there more often. I think they're trying to do more interleague games, so. definitely catch a few yankee games at a much cheaper stadium than yankee stadium
1: (laughs) i don't get to watch as many games now i live in minneapolis but i there was a wave of like the jeter phase because i'm i was born in 1970 so i i vaguely remember like the 80s with willie randolph and i was like oh they kind of made made the world series and then there was just a drought (laughs) and so as they started picking up i was happy i got to see I, I was happy Don Mattingly made it to a postseason game, which was nice. He got to... I think he did when they expanded that one season to the wild card.
0: Yeah, 1995.
1: I think they... And then Derek Jeter and Don Mattingly got to play one season together, I think.
0: Yeah, Jeter came up, I think, in August of 95, and that was Mattingly's last season.
1: Yes. And then they took off. and So I got to go to the 1996 World Series Game 6 at Yankee Stadium, where they clinched it. And... I remember when they qualified for the World Series. I lived in Yonkers in the moment. We flew down to Yankee Stadium with lawn chairs. And we're like, we're waiting in line. We waited 26 hours, four tickets. There was like a stampede at like 2 a.m., like lost a chair, almost got (laughs) crushed. And then when it got to the gate, they're like, all we have is game six left. I was like, ah, Yanks Yanks are going to sweep it in four. Like, (laughs) what a bummer. They lost the first two. And I was like, oh, man. And then win three, win four, win five. I'm like we have game six tickets so that it's almost like you see your home team win in their home stadium as the old stadium too and I feel like okay I think I can check that box off of like you know done my deed as a super fan so
0: yeah absolutely it's uh, that was such that was a very formative season for me because my cousin tried very hard to make me a Mets fan I lived in what people in the city would call upstate but real upstate people know that. I'm like I was like an hour and a half from the city. Like that's not really upstate. Where were you? In Orange County, New York, okay. Middletown area. So, you know, city cops can still live in in my hometown. So I can't. We can't be that upstate. <laughs> but. uh I just remember, like, you know, Don, that 95 was like the year Don Mattingly retired and the year Mickey Mantle died. And Mickey Mantle was my dad's favorite baseball player. And um, I was just like, you know what? Yankees are like more in my house. And and I love Mattingly. And and then 96 happened. I mean, we were, I bought my first Yankee hat ever from Lids the night that they won game six. Like it was, and I'm like, this is a lucky hat. (laughs) I like exactly a month later. I played soccer when I stopped playing soccer is when I started to gain a little bit of weight. So if you play soccer, just keep playing soccer (laughs) or footballer. So but I won a soccer shootout. So, you know, there was like free kicks and I took first place in that and I came outside and it was November 26th. And my team like dumped Gatorade on me uh, like ice cold. Uh, in the cold and all I said was I feel like John Wetland after he closed game six of the World <laughs> Series. I was just like, yes, that's this is amazing.
1: Super, super Uber Yankee's reference for those listening. Okay. We've lost all the Boston fans at this point. So I know, right? Though.
0: <laughs> we can summon them back by saying two thousand four. A L C S two thousand
1: four. <laughs> so that's their moment. So now is it is the business your full time entrepreneur, business owner?
0: Yeah. So my daughter was born in 2017. I'd been running the podcast for about a year. My side gig was doing well. And I realized that the agent, like what you need to do for the agency life, right? The agency in the sense that we were doing work for like Fortune 100 companies. There were some late nights some weekends. Like I was willing to do that when I first got the job, right? Cuz I was like more or less single. I was I was dating who is now my wife, but I didn't have family obligations, but the agency life did not jive with the kind of dad I wanted to be. And when I gave my notice, I remember, again, I was I don't hold a lot of things. I'm I'm like I don't think I'm rude, but I'm direct. And so you know, we were told that if we wanted to get paid for a job, we had to work the weekend. And I said, if I wanted to work to get paid, I would work for myself. Like the deal is that I work for you so that you pay me consistently, not based on project completion. And so I just realized like there were a lot of weekends happening at that point, and they they bounced back and they're doing great now, and I'm really happy for them because a lot of my friends still work there. But um, when I was trying, when the people there were trying to convince me to stay, I said, look. I'm not gonna miss my kids' first steps because I had to work late for you. And they're like, so there's no convincing you. And and you know, that sounds that sounds like it didn't end amicably, but it definitely did. I'm still friends with, with everybody there and I, I check in and see how they're doing and but it was I want to communicate how important that was. And my wife was super supportive. That's so good. Because as you can imagine, introducing economic uncertainty when you have a three month old is not the best. And like I was kind of appalled by how bad like the maternity policy was for my wife. Like we had to use all of her vacation time and then it would be unpaid. So there was a time in there where like I was the breadwinner, like the only person bringing in money, and that was really scary, but uh we're doing it full time now. I joked when I was a kid I wanted to start my own business that my dad my dad was like how are you going to get health insurance? I was like, I'll just marry somebody who has health insurance. And that's kind of what we did. My big goal now is with the third one on the way, if my wife wants to drop down to like part-time, I want to be able to pay for health insurance for the family. So that's like my, my big grow my business goal to be able to offer health insurance for me and my three kids.
1: That's a big one as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still not there with my company. So I, but it's working with a lot of freelancers for what we do, but it's, I think entrepreneurial journey is a mouthful, but it's also something that you, you're not prepared for in school. And there's no real manual for like what to do and not to do. And like, I'm not accounting is not my forte. So I stumbled a bit with that in taxes early on. And I think it's important. And I'm wondering what you think as a teacher, like how to, you know, just either show by example or just mentor folks as you see them starting their entrepreneurial journey
0: yeah, that's definitely it. Learn by doing is something I've said for a long time, right? Because even with programming, it's like, I can teach you like what recursion is or whatever. but like until until we write a program that implements recursion, it's like really hard to visualize, right? So if I make you do it, and then you can work through it and it's a lot of trial by error, and I'm a big fan of trial by error. Of course, if you have a good mentor, hopefully you'll make fewer errors, right? And so you really can't teach how to run a business in the classroom. You need to teach how to run a business by running a business. Trades know this, right? You can't become a master electrician until you have like 30 years experience under a master electrician. You have to do an apprenticeship. I was lucky enough to work for a deli because I am a stereotype. (laughs) I'm a (laughs) New York Italian who worked in the deli. And um, the owner of the deli, uh, Joe Rizzi, saw the entrepreneurial spirit in me and so every Saturday after we closed and we'd clean and we'd be done for the week, he would just give me lessons about what he's learned in his experience and That's cool. pricing. you know, he, the, first, the first real lesson I had about pricing, because I was charging like 10 bucks an hour for websites, and he's like, Joey, anybody who met me before 2008 calls me Joey, Joey.
1: They got a pass. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you good at what you do? He looked me right in the eye and said, are you good at what you do? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm very good at what I do. I really love what I do. And he goes, $10 an hour doesn't tell me you're good at what you do. It tells me you're cheap. He's like, you need to charge at least $30 an hour. And I was like, but what if he's like, people will know. People who look for good work know what to love. Oh, is. man, that's so good. Yeah. So, you know, he's like, you wouldn't buy a car for 100 bucks, right? And I'm like, no. He's like, right. So charge what you're worth and people will realize that you do quality work.
1: I love, yeah I, I got taught that early on as well it's so valuable because it, it's a weird thing pricing psychology and understanding like what there's something you can actually price your stuff so low that it's discouraging to people because they're just like well what's wrong with this it's like kind of a little too cheap and especially when they see others in your field they're like thousand 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 you're charging a hundred uh, it's probably not that good it's interesting when you learn it and you start to experiment with it and do a b testing and stuff like that like what what's the number and you just kind of got to figure that out as you go along so
0: yeah i've definitely lost proposals because i wasn't charging enough and when you don't i mean first of all when you don't charge enough i think the main thing it probably shows is that you don't understand the problem right if someone's asking you Mm, to build a membership site and you're like oh yeah it'll only take me a couple of hours someone's like but i need like all of this custom stuff how is it only going to take you a couple of hours what are you giving me right i think that's That's probably, at least in web development, I think that's probably the case. But the same thing goes, you know, my online courses, I sell a course called Podcast Liftoff to teach people how to launch a podcast. And, you know, if I'm charging like 29 bucks for the course, people are going to think, what am I really learning from this? You know, is it good? What's what's even the content? But if, if I'm charging 200 bucks now, they're like, oh, it must be good. Also they have skin in the game for 200 bucks. So they're going oh, I just paid 200 bucks for this. I better actually do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people value what they, they invest their, their money in. Just a couple of questions as we wrap up. The time has flown by, <laughs> which is usually what happens, but I'm curious now how you've grown as a host knowing what you know, you know, doing all those putting the reps in and are there some things that you can point to where you're you feel like you've grown?
0: Yeah. So I've always been inquisitive. I think that's what made me a good host in the beginning is that I'd, I'd ask questions. I'm a lot more confident to deviate from the format. And so I'm experimenting a lot more with solo episodes, different topics. I'm trying to hone my niche down a little bit more, right? My first niche was just like, Business owners, everybody. I want a million downloads, and now I'm like, I want to really connect. So I think I, you know, I've learned that podcasting is a really intimate medium, and I really want to connect with my audience. And so I'm narrowing down the niche a little bit more, and I'm I want to give even better actionable advice to maybe a smaller group of people. And so I mean, maybe that sounds like counterintuitive to what most people would say about podcasting, but. I think you want to be able to connect with with your listeners and you want them coming back especially cuz I sell a membership for my my show. If I don't grab those people and really make them feel connected then they're not going to want to give me 5 bucks a month or whatever.
1: Makes a lot of sense.
0: And that's probably the other thing I've learned was I launched a membership early on that went really poorly because I was just like I'm going to offer everything for like a dollar a month on Patreon. <laughs> and then I had like 3 people and I'm like I don't want to do all this stuff for like 250 like <laughs>
1: That's funny. Yeah. No, again, back to pricing. That's what you learned. Yeah, right. What's something you've changed your mind about recently?
0: Oh, wow. What's something I've changed my mind about recently? If we're talking like recently, like in the last week, it's if the Yankees are going to make the playoffs, which I don't think okay. they are. Uh, <laughs> Long term, like maybe within the last five years, we'll say, I think it's really easy for people without kids to be like, well, if I was a parent, I would do this. My kid's never getting the iPad when your kid is screaming in your ear and you're trying to cook dinner and like the iPad quiets them down. Yeah. You can throw the iPad at them for like 20 minutes. That's fine. So I think the thing I've changed my mind about is criticizing other people's parenting without knowing the situation there. And maybe that's just bigger, right? Aaron judge last night, bringing it back to Yankees. I'm really sorry for anybody who hates sports, (laughs) but you know, last night Aaron judge was late to the game and he was originally scratching the lineup and came in late. And um, he was asked why he was on the COVID list. And he was asked, are you vaccinated? And he goes, I'm not getting into that. And a lot of people are like, well, that means no. Maybe it just means he doesn't want to talk about health, right? He's there to play baseball. Maybe he's really private about it. Maybe he is, but one of his teammates isn't. And he doesn't want to out his teammate, right? It's,
1: That's smart. Yeah.
0: I think I've always had empathy towards my students because they are learning something for the first time and I can't expect them to know what I know with 20 years experience. I'm trying to have more empathy towards everybody and understand that not everybody's in the situation that I'm in and they're going to handle things differently and they're going to answer questions differently. And I think that's really important. And that's, I think that's probably the biggest thing I've changed my mind on. I, I usually went from, why don't you just do this to There's probably a reason they're not just doing that. It's probably not just doing that.
1: Something, um, my girlfriend heard and passed on to me is that judgment and curiosity can't live in the same space.
0: Yes. Yeah. I love that, right? I think it's something very similar, right? That I, I read from soundtracks, right? Criticism kills curiosity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you're gonna hey.
0: criticize or judge something, right? Exactly what your girlfriend said. Like yep. you can't possibly learn from it. And you can't you can't think beyond, you know, I just read a tweet today too that was like in my opinion, people who have a take on everything know very little about anything. And it was, like, hot off the heels of, like, the Simone Biles news, right? And people, like, I mean, like, like, pundits who just talk are, like, you know what she should do? And I'm, like, not listen to you? People who can relate to pundits is everybody, because anybody knows how to, like, run their mouth and give a a shallow opinion. People who can relate to Simone Biles is, like, five living people right now. (laughs) Like, or ten living, however big the current you know, U.S. gymnastics team is. Those are the people who can relate to Simone Biles. It's a very, very small group of people. So maybe let them talk to Simone Biles.
1: We produced a show for a couple of seasons for Samantha Peszek, who was on the 2008 gymnastics team. Oh wow! And won the silver medal. And her show was called "I Have Cool Friends." And you can do that <laughs> when you're when you're like uh, at that level. But I got to edit some of those first episodes, and Simone, she had an interview with Simone on there, and it was just just fascinating that world that if you think about like when you're young and you're in t-ball and you're like, you're the fastest kid. Like I was, they used to call me Speedy Gonzalez, but I get to high school and the first day of track and the kids blowing by me and I'm like, I'm running as fast as I can. Like, how was that? And then that kid gets to college and you've got the the fastest there and then the majors and then the best of the majors and then the the Olympics. And you, then you think like, this is like to be a world-class athlete to your point is just, percentages of percentages of people that, that can perform at that level and just definitely my hats off to them
0: absolutely and i just i i keep thinking about this like with the aaron judge thing with the simone Biles thing with um the tennis player whose name i'm going to have a horrible Naomi time pronouncing Naomi Osaka? yeah yeah yeah. Like, that. yeah like they're not here to entertain us right yeah. imagine somebody like watching what you do every day and then going you should do that better you don't know how to do this <laughs> at all though exactly yeah but do it better i'm watching you like you should be here for me. Like, no, they're doing their best at a thing that they've worked way harder than most people have worked at anything. And I think that's really important to, to remember, right? People are people. I think my friend Brian is it. people are people. Remember that.
1: What's uh, the most misunderstood thing about you?
0: <laughs> I'll use my friend's words here. Cause I don't really like to say this about me, but he has said, you know, we were kind of talking, you know how boys talk. They're like, can I?" oh, I, you think I can take you in a fight? You think you can take me in a fight? And the most common answer that was said about me is, if Joe is really mad, I don't think I can. And so I'm usually slow to extreme anger. But when I get there, it's really scary for a lot of people because they don't see me like that. Usually I'm like this and I'm very happy and I'm usually very measured And I don't lose my temper. And so I think that is probably the thing that, I don't know if that properly answers your question, but.
1: No, it's always an interesting, I just love people's takes on it. And to your point, like I have lost my temper at that level. And I almost feel like there should be like an iPhone app that starts recording when it it notes the tone (laughs) in your voice. So you could, because people, if you saw videos of yourself acting the fool, like a maniac, you'd probably do it a lot less. And because I'm better now. And I, I get really embarrassed when I think about it. Like, an hour later, I'm like, oh, that wasn't cool. <laughs> so-
0: yeah, yeah, and like I said, I've I've never. It's very rare for me, right? I like I can probably count like on my hand, on one hand, how many times I've really. One time, it's because like somebody like hit me with their car in a crosswalk, <laughs> I was like, I just like slammed on their hood, and my friend who was with me, and she was like. I've never seen you get that mad and I was like the dude just hit me with his car. Like
1: <laughs> Yeah, that qualifies. That qualifies in my book.
0: You know, one time some uh, someone tried to take a swing at a friend of mine and and I felt the need to defend her. So like, you know, it's like very Oh my god. isolated incidents, but Cases. Yeah, but when people see it, they I feel like it's they feel a little bit different about me afterwards cuz usually I'm like the I'm the guy that you see I'm very smiley, but So yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's the answer. Maybe um, I'm generally nice enough that it's uh, maybe people underestimate other aspects of my life. Maybe that's the misunderstood part about me.
1: Well, I'm glad uh, you didn't lose your cool on this interview and uh, we ended up having a fun discussion. So thank you so much, Joe, for uh, making the time and uh, being a good sport Uh, on coming on a show you'd probably never heard of before.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much. This was really great, and um, I mean, I suspect that you've realized this, but you ask really good questions that I thank you. I've never got before, so maybe I was taken aback by some of them. I hope the the answers were good.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for being open to and sharing your story with my audience. Where is the best place to send folks to what you're working on?
0: Most of what I'm working on is over at casabona.org, so that's my last name dot org, and uh, I have all the podcasts I host. And the courses I'm working on and and things like my blog and YouTube videos, that's just a good place for everything.
1: And the show is called How I Built It. Take that guy, Raz. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Joe.
0: And I'll end with this. I was mad at first about it because I was like, oh, man. (laughs) Uh, And then I was like, you know what? They just kind of like confirmed my concept for me without me having to spend a bunch of time and money figuring it out. So I knew I had a good idea because NPR also did it.
1: Very cool. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Thanks again to Joe for coming on the show. PodcastJunkies.com forward slash 276. Don't forget to check out our sponsor Focusrite and they're also a line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Pro. Focusrite has just signed up for another season with Podcast Junkies. We could not be more honored to have their support. And I'm looking forward to sharing new products they've got in the works, which I've been given a sneak peek of. So... I'm looking forward to giving you those links podcast production and marketing provided by fullcast sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15 tune in for my conversation next week with return guest bill barol and new guest matt ricardo who have teamed up on a new fantastic show and it's called imagination and junk it's a freewheeling transatlantic conversation about creativity what it is where it comes from why it matters and in true bill barol fashion The production is off the charts. It's definitely bingeable, so make sure you listen in for that. If you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with Penjoe, P-E-N-J-O-E, and it speaks to one of his hobbies, and you probably know what I'm talking about if you made it this far and you listen to this interview. Tag Joe at J J Casabona J-C-A-S-A-B-O-N-A, and podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Love you guys. Talk to you next week.